honestly like the the versatility of the frittata and it's like fridge clean out. The things that I have put into frittata, some of it works, some of it doesn't. But to me, it's always just been like my go-to. I don't have too much time. I have a lot of random stuff in my fridge. I'm going to put it into a frittata. You're listening to The Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. What a joy it is to have my old friend and former colleague Talia Bayoki on the show. Talia has one of the sharpest minds in food media, and we talk about the publication she has run for nearly a decade, Punch. I wanted to ask Talia about so many topics related to modern drinking culture, including the explosion of N.A., the issues with natural wine, and her take on the future of the cocktail. We also talk about her cookbook, Pasta, that she wrote with New York City chef Missy Robbins. It was a blast having Talia on, and I really hope you enjoy it. Talia Bayoki, welcome to the Taste Podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. I'm so happy to see you. My God, we worked together for several years. You brought me back in the building. It's been since uh, 2019, so it's uh, that lobby has not changed. Nope. Maybe some books have changed, but the lobby looks the same. It's nice and comforting. Oh, the books have probably not changed either. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wanted to have you on just to talk about Punch and all the great work you've been doing there and just in general your career in cookbooks and, and just in media. I, I, I just We were friends well before we worked together at Punch, and I just— love your taste. You have a great view of the food world. Thank so. you. That's really nice. And uh, one big part of working with you is just coming in in the morning and talking about what we what we cooked or where we ate the night before. It was just such a joy to hear you and Chloe and Lizzie and Anna and Tatiana, all of us came together and we're chit-chatting about what we did. So I have to start. Where have you been recently restaurant-wise in New York City? You're such a voracious restaurant goer. I know you could be a restaurant critic if you sh- wanted to, if you ever wanted to enter that because you just have great taste. What's been good? What's been not good? Well, in the spirit of of the old office chatter, yeah. I'll tell you where I was last night, which sure. is at Raul's, oh. um, which I've actually been <sighs> to twice in the last two weeks. And, you know, it's always like a wait. If you don't have a reservation, it's tough to get a reservation. you got to, like, get online at midnight two weeks out. Um, but it's like one of those restaurants that is just so perfectly New York that you really couldn't imagine anywhere else. And like the food is better than it mm-hmm. needs to be. I actually think it's the be- best. If you're ever craving like steak up poivre, it's the place to be. They make a great non-pretentious martini. <laughs> like pretty much any classic that you order there, like everything is free poured. No one's jiggering anything. But like the drink arrives. It's the right temperature. It's delicious. It's the playlist is always like Signed perfectly like Gen X. I'm not even Gen yeah. X, but like I appreciate it. Um, and the scene is always just this like perfect mix of New Yorkers. It feels just like yeah. that place couldn't exist anywhere else. So I was there last night, uh, sat at the bar, had a steak up poivre, yeah. ran into a couple of people I haven't seen in a long time. It's like always that industry yeah. spot. Is that well. Village or West Village? What do you call it? Uh, West Village. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, definitely it's on Prince, West Village. Like yeah. toward uh, yeah. 6th Avenue. Yeah. Always lo- like neighborhood restaurant. It's always been like locals lo- totally. hanging out there. Yeah. Like last the, the, the last time I was there two weeks ago, Cindy Lauper was there. It's yeah. like that kind of place. Nice. Um, so I, I love Raul's. Um, lately, I've really loved Plaza de Fete. Um, mm. I think it's the kind of restaurant that New York has proved to do really yeah. well. Like it's in the same vein as like Four Horsemen, Estella, where it's just like really beautiful high acid cooking and great wine and great cocktails, great vibe mm-hmm. um, and focused on seafood. And they do it really well. I love Al Badawi. Mm-hmm. Um, went there recently with a group and really loved it. Um, last week I went to Aval, um, which is in Bushwick, really Not great familiar. Persian restaurant. Um, one of the original chefs from Sofre. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you've been there. Oh, 
Oh yeah, Sofre. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's not a Sofre uh, restaurant, but it's a chef from Sofre. Exactly. Got yeah, it, it. went and opened his own place and really like delicious food. This was like back in Punch's sort of old stomping grounds off the Morgan stop. Yeah. Um, and what a great office. <laughs> great. I mean, that office was awesome. I like still I miss that that bodega across the yeah. street. Like they had great uh, tripe stew that everybody would get when they yeah. came in, and they were just a little bit worse for wear in the a morning. A little bit. Great say coffee up the street. It's, yeah. It's a good spot. Yeah. Totally. So I've been I've been loving those spots recently. I've loved I've always loved Dame. I I um, yep. like Lords. I had a great meal at Casa Mono. I hadn't been there mm. in like probably five years, yeah. and like it's still just like reliable, delicious. One food. of the most tourist centric restaurants totally. in New York. I feel Casa Mono. It's always it's been in guidebooks for like twenty years, but still so great. I went there maybe two years. But I think during the pandemic I went there actually. So it was really solid. Yeah. Um, Great list. Yeah. So My that's God. kind of where I've been Thank uh, you for recently. coming to play. <laughs> Talia came to play. Um, and another part about like these morning catch-ups or Slack channels if you weren't in the office was like cooking because, you know, we collaborated on Taste. You were an editor at Taste and we collaborated um, on so many great stories. But I, I just loved getting your take on home cooking. Um, I loved talking, talking about fish cooking. You are just like the most passionate Fish Love cook. to cook fish, yeah. I mean, what's your new passion? I haven't like caught up with you in a while. Is there something that you're making right now that you just love that you feel like um, is a sign of you? Uh, well, you know, I've um, been making – I'm like in a – very much in like a, a stew zone, which is nice. generally where I get like sort of around this time of year. But I've been making a lot – I've been cooking a lot of Mexican food, got a tortilla press, been kind of doing that. And um, I, I do a lot of chili verde, chicken and pork chili verde, nice. chili colorado, chili con carne, um, chicken tinga, stuff like that. You're just like making that. tortillas from fresh masa? Yeah, yeah. How, how are, you, are you doing just like Just water. It's just yeah. like masa harina and, yep. and water. Um, and it's super easy. Easy and quick and been loving that and just freezing tons of it. So yeah. I've just been like in a bulk cooking mode and I <laughs> um just loading myself up for the sort of dead of winter. And I've been doing a lot yeah. of that. I've been making a lot of um citrus salads lately too, and some of it inspired almost every time I, I go to Zuni uh mm-hmm. in San Francisco, I like sort of walk away with like some way to incorporate winter citrus or oh, winter yeah. fruit into a salad. And I'm not a big fruit eater and like having a way to eat fruit in a savory sort of through a savory mm-hmm. lens is like always fun for me. So I've been doing like some persimmon, burrata, pomegranate stuff. I like that. That yeah. so burrata is the kind of bringing in the creamy savory element. Um, is it like low acid or high acid in the vinaigrette? Pretty high acid, yeah. especially with like getting the pomegranate in there yeah. and then really good olive oil. Yeah. Um, there was a salad I had at Zuni maybe two years ago that was just winter citrus, brown butter, and toasted hazelnuts. Like mm-hmm. that is it. Just cut really oh, thin man. and it's perfect. And yeah. I go, I find myself like going back to that as well. Um, but a lot of a lot of stews, still eating a lot of fish, still yeah. cooking a lot of fish. Still cooking a lot of fish. <laughs> um, the occasional whole rabbit gets roasted. Oh, that's right. You had a rabbit face for a while. A big rabbit face. Yeah. That's like, you know, you can do a whole rabbit. Underrated what, um, protein for home. Totally. It's pretty easy to break down. Like there's a lot on YouTube and then whatever you don't eat, you turn it into a ragu. Yeah. Like, what is it about rabbit meat? Because it is quite clean. It doesn't have like too much game in it. But why do you like cooking with it? I, You know what? Part of it is this I love rabbit ribs. So when you cook a whole rabbit and this is something this goes back to like a dish I had like forever ago in um, a place called Paco Morago in, in Barcelona. Oh, Paco Morago, that uh, the egg 
uh, yep. that fermented Famous. egg. Yeah, yep. so good. And they do this, they had this little like, you know, terracotta, um, like a sizzling sort of, almost the way they do like gamba saijo. Yeah. Um, but they did just rabbit ribs that were basically like French rabbit ribs that then had like a little medallion at the end of it. And I literally went back there and ordered two orders two times <laughs> when I was there. And, and I love eating rabbit ribs. So even when you roast a whole rabbit, there's just so much flavor yeah. contained in that in that bit, even those like sort of those like the the flaps that kind of go over the ribs, really flavorful. Yeah. To me, it's like it's hard to cook because it is so lean, but there's a ton of flavor packed into that. It's true. And, and it's and, versatile. And you can buy it pretty easily. Takes to marinades well. Like it's a yeah. great it's a great protein. Yeah, rabbit. Um, the egg carpaccio at Palco Think about that dish. Pretty sustainable. Oh, yeah. Rabbit. You know? Absolutely. Um, You had a Finsta, or maybe not quite a Finsta, but like a (laughs) semi-anonymous frittata Finsta. Yeah. What is it about the frittata that made you create an account back in the day? And I will link to it in the show notes most certainly. Honestly, like the the versatility of the frittata and the way it allows you – it's like fridge clean out. Yeah. The things that I have put into frittatas, some of it works, some of it doesn't. But to me, it's always just been like my go-to. I don't have too much time. I have a lot of random stuff in my fridge. I'm going to put it into a frittata. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I, I sort of like fell in love with making them and and like testing the limits of the frittata, mm-hmm. um, which is what that that Instagram account was all about. It was really cute. And I, I will link to it. Is it a cast iron? Is it a stainless steel? What's the pan for a frittata? Oh, well, I kind of have gone down a lot of different paths with the frittata, yeah. but I'm really into now nonstick. I just go yeah. straight nonstick. But the the satisfaction of <laughs> sliding a, fr- a whole frittata yeah. out of a pan and onto a plate is you got to use nonstick for, for eggs. Non-stick. For eggs. I mean, it's you're you're just like, you know, causing a lot of pain in your life if you're using like cast iron for eggs. People yeah, I, I mean, look, I would love to be that person, but my cast <laughs> irons are never seasoned properly. Never. And so like it's no matter what I do, like it's sticking. We did a sheet pan frittata story, I remember. Oh, yeah? We worked on that that one time. Loved that. Done a few of those in my day. <laughs> also does stick a little bit. And it you, does. So you really got to go for the, like, the non-stick. Non-stick always. Yeah. All right. I want to talk about punch, and it's it's such a joy to read. And and first, familiarize our audience, um, you know, what punch does and strives for. Um, and also the second part is um, now that you're, you're, like, linked up with Eater, a sister publication, you just put out this amazing package about where to drink in 2023. So, but first of all, what is punch? Uh, well, um, it's funny because like it's been almost 10 years. going to be t- Punch's 10-year anniversary coming up at, in October of 2023, which Oh, my gosh. You sent those zines about. out. Yeah. You know, maybe that's in on the horizon as well, like <gasps> a, a zine redux. A 10-year uh, anniversary handwritten handstone zine. Yeah. No. I, I, I. But the the thing about like sort of an impending anniversary is like that you start to think about what it is that it was originally and how close is it to the thing that it was originally and and – I think we've stayed pretty true to the mission, which is really like telling great stories about drinks and drinking culture, helping people drink smarter, but also like, you know, coming at it in a way that is both like sort of, uh, you know, not scholarly, Mm -hmm. um, but we're always trying to like answer the bigger question, but like there is no topic that is sort of beneath us. So like even when it comes to like, I don't know, the blowjob shot, we're not above telling a story about that. We're just going to ask a question that's like 
the unlikely question about it. And there's always like a bigger story there. So for us, it's like sort of trying to capture like the joy and also the thing that's culturally important about going out and grabbing a drink. Yeah. I mean, it is the center of many folks' lives and drinker or not, you still are, are aware of, well, you know, the, the, the beer and wine scene or the cocktail scene. Um, what I always liked about Punch as a, as a reader and as a former staff member was that you were absolutely allergic to the fratty nature of drinks content, which at the time was pretty much all drinks content before you launched was like all about, um, you know, bar uh, games and lots of uh, where to drink like X amount of drinks in an hour. But you were allergic to that. And I want to like get into um, it's almost like 90s music, right? This is a comparison I draw. Like you you are covering the cocktail scene um, with in a way that's similar to like journalists were covering like music in the 90s. There's like this like subculture within drinks that you love to cover so rigorously. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, too, like we punch came up at a time where like craft beer and craft cocktails were still kind of like not yet even peaking. And um, both of those cultures did feel very male dominated, I think, at the outset. The cocktail renaissance being like when you think of that, you think of this sort of like dark, moody, speakeasy, a bartender and suspenders, like all of these like cliches that we now realize are outdated. But at that time, those were still sort of some of the dominant tropes in drinking culture, craft beer obviously being sort of the, and we did a story about kind of the evolution of the IPA as a way to look at like the evolution of beer culture as a whole. And at that time, it was still very much like at the tail end of this like West Coast IPA, like the IBU wars and Mm -hmm. this kind of like very like metalhead, like skull crusher, like that (laughs) kind of vibe and drinks. And so for us, like we really wanted to take a left turn and be able to cover that, but cover that in a way that felt more inclusive. And also to, you know, say that this isn't the only sort of aesthetic in drinking Mm -hmm. and things were changing really rapidly. All of these drink, um, these, you know, beer, wine, spirits, cocktails, those were all things that were typically covered separately. And you had like specialists, like the whiskey advocate that would be covering whiskey, you know, and, um, you know, craft beer specialists. And our sort of our our mission in the beginning was to say, well, these things are actually like more connected than we think they are Mm -hmm. and more connected than most publications are giving them credit for being. And if we can kind of look at these things all together, what can we learn about them that we wouldn't be able to if we just looked at them separately? Yeah. Back to that package you you just published with Eater um, in concert with Eater's Where to Eat in 2023. You had a Where to Drink. And I feel like you and your staff made some calls, like you made some really interesting choices. So for our audience, where are you suggesting we drink in terms of the cities in the world? This was so hard. And this is such a great, <laughs> this was such great fun for us yeah. because we got to take an existing um, sort of rubric that Eater had established and had done so well and like do it actually for us on a smaller scale. So we even made it, you know, Eater did 11 cities. We said, okay, well, let's do five. Can we do five? So um, we went out to like a big group of writers and we asked them, hey, like, what about your city do you think should be on this? Like, what makes this city relevant? Why should we go there in 23, not just in general? So we got a lot of compelling answers back. And um, for us, like we zeroed in on these five cities because all of them told a story that feels very much of this moment coming out of the pandemic. Cities that really felt like they were 
in transition in oh, a way. Cool. That was a that was a real like moment, like the transition, like growth or change within these cities. Yeah. Yeah. And that and that feeling of being able to go to a place and kind of feel that it is not fixed, mm-hmm. that it is sort of like a little bit frenetic, a little bit like, you know, there's some tension there between old and new. And so all of these places sort of have that. Um, one that I was most excited about that I think that that um, is near and dear to you is Madison, Wisconsin. Um, which is a place that, like, you know, when you look at the entire U.S., there are a lot of places that feel obvious that you could say, like, that would be great places to drink right now. Yeah, Houston, San Francisco, always on the list. Sure, all of that. Like, New Orleans, Orleans, like, you know, Charleston, like, all these places Mm -hmm. that people shout out as drinking cities. But Madison is a great example of a place that is this collision of old and new, this place that is a college drinking town, has all these old you know, Midwestern traditions, these supper clubs, ice cream cocktails, you know, the the Wisconsin old fashioned, yeah. like this tradition of taking Ingostura shots, like all of these really cool things that feel very much of that place. And then this influx of talent that is from Madison mm-hmm. went out, went and worked on all these big markets, came back and is sort of reimagining some of these things through a, a more global or national lens. Yeah. I mean, Jim Meehan, who's not even in the package, he <clears throat> started his career there, but you've got like Brian Bartels, you've got like wonderful uh, dives or or old old man drinking bars and great talent there. I love that. What's another city you pointed out? For me, it's like hard because everyone's like, okay, of those five cities, like what are the two? Like what's the top I know, of your list? I know. It, like, it, just give me one other one. Yeah, yeah. no, I, I mean, Madison is definitely at the top of my list. Yeah. Um, Buenos Aires, yeah. like really cool city. So much going on. Obviously, all of this sort of European drinking traditions, aperitivo culture, and then the way in yeah. which that place has made those traditions its own. Um, and some homegrown cool cocktails, the Clarito, yeah. this, you know, Buenos Aires's martini, the yeah. Buenos Aires style, old fashioned, like a lot, the wine culture there. Part of what's interesting to me is like Argentina and South America sort of lagged behind Chile, for instance, in its natural wine movement. Interesting. That's all happening there now. And a lot of those wines aren't even getting to us yet. So mm-hmm. like you go to Buenos Aires and you can go to these natural wine bars and drink these wines from, you know in and around Buenos Aires. Speaking of natural wine, you are such an astute observer of the wine industry. You came up as a wine professional before your journalism career. And um, I wanted to, I'll link to this in the show notes. Jordan Michaelman wrote a cool piece for BA and uh, had him on the show to talk about it. And I wanted to get your take on um, natural wine. Is it losing its cool? I have some thoughts on the piece, but I wanted you to start um, about the natural wine movement right now, um, the challenges it may be facing, especially with like public perception. Hashtag Natty Wine is a real movement, but it kind of under undersells what's really happening. Yeah, I mean, you know, you know, this is like such a familiar being a music geek. Like this is such a familiar story is like, you know, the band that you want people to pay attention to and is finally everyone pays attention and understands why they're good. And then everyone's upset that like the band is successful. Right. And so this is sort of this moment in natural wine, but it's really complicated because I think that most people that you would talk to that were champions, early champions of natural wine, like the whole reason they wanted these wines to become bigger than they were. They wanted these Mm -hmm. wines to become more mainstream because it was about great farming. It was about what was good for the planet. It was about what was making making wines that were actually more reflective of their place um, that didn't really before have like a Mm -hmm. big market share. Mm -hmm. And so then, you know, those wines get 
their market share. And there are some things that are disappointing about that because you see like abuses of the natural wine moniker. Yeah. You try you start to see people who see that this is big business, that this is culturally relevant, and that are making wines that don't necessarily that don't deserve to be called natural, mm-hmm. but they're sort of imitators. So that's that's a natural thing that ends up happening when someone realizes a commercial value of a thing. So I think that's the 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 this like this tension in natural wine right now, where it's like you want these wines to be more culturally relevant because that's good for the planet. It's good for wine. It's good for the things that like that all of us care about. But then there's the other side of this is we live in a capitalist yeah. society, and they're all gonna take they're gonna take like just a little bit of uh, a marketing a marketing uh, point or a bullet point and and just push it out in in ways that feel super uncomfortable. And I think like the the way the, the moniker has been, um, you know, scandalized really through the industry. It's bad. Well, it's and it's hard to then be like promoting and then trying to protect the thing yeah. at the same time. And then what that ends up looking like a lot of times is gatekeeping. And you're saying, yeah. okay, well, I know you might like like this wine because you saw like there's then becomes you have to like qualify yourself as being worthy mm-hmm. of like drinking the wines and knowing enough about them so then that starts to happen right and so i think we're starting to see a lot of that natural wine is sort of dealing with some of this issues of class and access that that it was originally rebelling against becoming mm-hmm. part of its own culture and then trying to figure out how to grapple with that it's really interesting. It's really interesting. It's hard to like articulate it in a single conversation. Um, I'll point to um, Alice Firing and Jancis Robinson. I had them both on the show. We talked about it a lot. Um, how are we? How can we be a better wine drinker, I, Talia? I mean, I want to. I want to ask you this. I don't drink myself, but I certainly have wine drinkers in my my life, and it feels like sometimes a blank slate when you're walking into a bottle shop. What should I don't I don't mean like what is the best wine to drink, but how do we how do we just how do we drink better? Yeah, I think it's like what's happening to with natural wine. It's like, it, you know, it's not asking what's cool. It's like looking for what's good and then understanding what is good to you, you know? Yeah. And and that's like, I think this goes back to developing relationships. This is always what, like in the early days when I was learning about wine, like I needed people who knew more than me to help yeah. me. And so finding like your wine retailer that you click with that like isn't going to talk down to you that like is has the patience to explain these things. And then developing your own taste. Like I think... It takes work. Like, it isn't easy to learn about wine. Like, it's yeah. confusing. It it changes really fast. Mm-hmm. Like, even me, like, I'm not in it in the way that I was originally. I'm not going to all the tastings. I'm not constantly staying up on every vintage. And so, like, even I feel, like, really out of the loop. <laughs> and I have spent, you know, whatever, 15 years drinking yeah. wine and reading about it and loving it. So um, I think it's just like figuring out the way in which you want to have wine in your life and have and look for meaning in that. Yeah. Like, I love that you say it's, it takes work because it, it's it's so true about a lot of elements in, in food culture. Um, it's not just going to be given to you. You have to read. You have to read articles on punch um, and just kind of put in the time to educate yourself and then make those educated decisions. Or you don't and you can still enjoy wine, right? So it's just like I think it's like getting over this like what's cool, what's not, am I drinking the right thing, am I drinking the wrong thing, you know? And I think you people can get caught in that and then focus on the wrong stuff. I want to talk to you about N.A. Um, It's been really interesting to follow the industry of it and I think I had John DeBerry on recently and I'll link to that. Great conversation about the struggles and the kind of failure of, of launching an N.A. brand, a spirits brand. But um, N.A. beer, we've talked about a lot on the show. It's like really just getting interesting at, at, at this moment. What are you seeing right now with N.A.? 
Oh my God. It is like, I, it, it's really hard to keep track of everything because it's also a market where like you have like, you have like the seed lips, for instance, that are trying to actually be something that is used in a cocktail that like is mimicking in some ways, like what you might find in terms of flavor profile. I can't in with a seed spirit. lip. I just, I can't. The stuff I've been given gifted it. I just can't with it. It's but it, not, it's ugh. like one, one lane, right? Or yeah. you have like liars where it's like, here's non-alcoholic whiskey or here's non-alcoholic gin. And then you have this whole other section of the market where they're like functional beverages where you're like, this is adaptogens and <laughs> CBD. And I'm just like, what is, and what is the purpose of that? Like, I don't, I get lost in the catch-all of NA mm-hmm. and in what, I think it comes down to like, what are you looking for as a drinker from an NA beverage? Are you looking to replace a cocktail? Are you just look, are you looking for something that is mood altering, but not mood altering in the way that, that alcohol is? So like it, it's basically now like a market that's trying to serve a lot of yeah. different wants. And I'm like, I don't know what where to where like how to categorize yeah. any of this stuff and nobody else does like we're doing we're doing a story right now that is about a whole like emerging category of like apre sport beverages yeah that you're like supposed to now drink after you play tennis and like that is like you know, post-workout post-workout like but, but like, but, like be better post-workout drinks yeah like it's just like huh. there's like the whole self-optimization lane yeah. there's the like mood altering lane and then there's like i'm replacing a cocktail lane you know so it's really hard. And some of these things then cross over. And you see that in like the non-alcoholic aperitif category yeah. where it's like it's mood altering. Also, it's a non-alcoholic yeah. spirit. So like I I think we're at a point right now where like there's a lot that's going to need to sort of like mm-hmm. be weeded out. They're trying like non-alcoholic spirits are trying to find their audience and talk to people about what they are. And uh, so it's a bit of a mess. I 100% agree. Well said, Talia. Thank you for pointing that out because it is hard to categorize it as just N.A. I mean, is there anything that excites you about, um, I'm not going to say N.A., but like a category that is um, de-spirited and has a maybe related to spirits or could be related to beer. Like, I don't know. I'm trying. There's a lot, there's a lot to like. I think the products are getting better and better all the time. I think like, like a lot of, 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 uh, companies that are spirits makers have tended to be best at this. Interesting. Like St. Agrestis, like the Phony Negroni, I think is delicious. My number one seed. Just had so one good. last weekend. Yeah. And, uh, Love it. what I also am really excited about and what, what is working with our audience is like how there's like, there are a lot of there's a lot of geekery now being applied to NA cocktails. There are techniques that you would use in like clarifying your cocktail, for instance, that are being applied yeah. to NA. And I think what that's doing is it's engaging this this sort of geek underbelly of cocktail culture and saying that that drink can be as complex and have as much of a back end as your classic cocktail. And you, it's a project. Absolutely. And that's super fun. The pandemic really, in my observation, really just amplified home cocktail. It just seems yeah. like the geekery has never been stronger. And I don't know if I would have thought that like five years ago. Maybe it was waning a bit. But you're seeing, I mean, you're, you're publishing great recipe stories all the time. Yeah, and like even like we're seeing, you know, Death & Company does this like, this uh, N.A., you know, quote unquote, Mezcal Negroni. And that's one of our like highest performing reels and TikTok videos. And you see that people are really engaged with like really doing doing 
creating a project for themselves uh, for an NA cocktail and having the energy to do that because they still, the you know that that might be somebody who spent the time to do to make cocktails like that at home and still wants to do I love that. It. So I think that's cool. I think like it's getting high concept. Punches at TikTok. Shout out to Kay Bray. <laughs> Shout out to Caitlin Bray. Just had to had to, had to call her out right now. Yeah, for sure. I love We've, it. Uh, that was a long time coming, and and uh, we launched our TikTok about oh god, it must have been like a couple months ago now. It's been oh, really cool. fun. Yeah, oh, I love I love that you're you're in that it's world. Fresh it makes perfect sense for what you do um, with the recipe development side of Punch, but also with the reporting side. It's really cool. I want to talk to you about your cookbook work. I mean, your your career is awesome. Like it's it's just when you start like talking about wow, you do you've done a lot, Tali, and it, I really respect what you've done and. Um, you know, spritz, likewise. Oh, thanks. A spritz is 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 a classic. You're well ahead of the curve with aperitivo culture. You did that like ten years ago, fifteen years ago. What is it? E- oh God, uh, that must have been 2016. That yeah. came out, maybe. Well ahead of the curve. I should probably know that, but no. yeah. I mean, now everyone's like the spritz is dead. <laughs> I know. I, I read that article as well. <laughs> Yeah. It had a good run. Had a good run, you know. How about the Negroni? Is it dead? We no, I mean, guy? God, the Negroni. Like, anytime we've been like, it's like a joke at punch. We're like, let's just put Negroni in this headline and it's going to perform. I know. It has nothing to do with Negroni. It's so great. I mean, yeah, the Game of Thrones stuff was amazing. Um, but I want to talk about pasta. Pasta. What a what a great, I had a great conversation with your co-author, Missy Robbins, and I'll link to that. I, I loved uh, that book. It was like a special book. And um, what did you learn traveling <laughs> Italy? Oh. Uh, going to these regions, Missy has her her answer, and I'll link to that in the show notes. But like, what did you learn traveling Italy and learning about pasta? I mean, it's just like an unknowable subject, and I sort <laughs> of like knew that. Obviously, I think like I liken it coming from the wine side to like the unknowability of of wine and and Italian wine and the story that it can tell. It's like one thing that can be made a bunch of different ways, and each person that makes it makes it a different way, and. Um, I like, you know, I, perhaps naively like getting into this book, it was like, okay, like we're going to make this book. It's going to be part like Missy's story and her yeah. point of view and then and then a reference book. And it's like, what an idiotic, like <laughs> what an idiotic thing to try to tackle. Meat on top of meat. It was a lot, a lot to ch- I was like, it was a lot. Bite off, yeah. Um, And so I think very quickly I was so grateful to have Miss, Missy's point of view as a guide in this because that there is no way, there would have been no other way to sort of narrow this enough to even begin to talk about it. And so like using her story of going from like Italian-American classics in New Haven, Connecticut to understanding regional classics um, for pasta and then having enough information to be able to then go and go home and start cooking your own pasta. Like that felt like a very manageable and logical structure for the book. And thank God we had it because I don't think it would have been doable otherwise. But you know, all I, it's the same thing with wine. Like the first trip that I made to Italy um, right after college when I was really interested in wine and wanted to learn more, I was like, I'm I'm going to be traveling for this for the rest of my life. And I felt oh. that way about pasta too. I'm going to be going to Italy for the rest of my life to learn about it. Yeah. I mean, I have to ask, I asked Missy this. I mean, is there a, is there a go-to uh, pasta that you're making yourself? Um, are, you, are you are you sick of pasta? I mean, you might be sick no, of it. No, it's impossible to okay. be sick of pasta. Right. Good, good, good. Good answer. Um, 
it's like even one dish, like we talk about this all the time, even like matriciana, yeah. like that is one thing that you could make literally once a week for the rest of your life and yeah. you would not get bored of it. And like it also depends on you. Sometimes you make it well, sometimes you don't. And you could do the same exact thing that you did the day before and it's going to taste different. I have to ask you, we ask many of our cookbook authors uh, about their the, the very last recipe in the book. Yours is on page 385. I mean, that's a long book. Roasted squash with hot honey and breadcrumbs. So let's give the story behind this recipe that probably didn't get as many eyeballs as some of the other recipes. Yeah, I mean, we, from the very beginning, it was really important to Missy to have vegetables in here because, like, really, it was, like, her ideal meal and is, like, really the concept of of the restaurant, Missy, is a great bowl of pasta and a really well-considered vegetable. And, like, that's kind of all you need. Yeah. And that was the the thinking there. I mean, the squash with hot honey and breadcrumbs is, like, basically a meal unto itself. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and I, I, I think Missy really approaches vegetable cookery with the same sort of rigor that she has with anything else that she's done. And, like, some of these recipes I even remember, like Lorena, there's one um, sort of a, a zucchini ponzanella dish in the book, more or less. It's not called that. Yeah. But Lorena was like, this recipe is, like, two pages. And <laughs> like, and it's so detailed because it's not hard. It just requires many steps and a lot of technique. So like these, to me, what's great about these vegetable recipes in the book is like there's a ton of technique mm-hmm. in here and there's a lot of learning about how to work with vegetables with the same sort of like yeah. attention that you would protein. Crafting pasta or, or making or pasta. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I honestly, I, I forget the story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is the last recipe in the book. So, you know, you might have forgotten it, but. Yeah, but I, I mean, I love that dish. I've eaten that dish yeah. a ton. It's been on, on the menus at the restaurants. Definitely. And it is a meal. Like, if yeah. you want to just skip pasta altogether, just go to page yeah. 358 and just make the squash. And hot honey, you know, invented in Brooklyn, people love essentially. It. You know, people love it. I love that voice. Yeah. I think it was invented. Yeah, I think it might have been invented in Brooklyn. I mean, right in if you... If Mike's Hot Honey, is that from... Yeah. Where is that from? Brooklyn, man. Brooklyn? Sounds Absolutely. like it could be Jersey, though. I don't know. Oh, uh, my been Jersey. I thought it was in one of those, like, um, large food production spaces from, like, t- 2006. You know, those, like, big Brooklyn... He was one of those companies. I don't know. Maybe, but I mean, the rise of hot honey has been kind of... It's cool. Yep. Do you miss going to Poly G Slice Shop in our old office? I do, um, although I live in Williamsburg. You, do, you live there. And as New York Magazine recently pointed out, yes. this is effectively the, like, this is Mecca for slice yeah. pizza in New York. Sliced pizza? <laughs> pizza by the slice. Pizza by the I slice. I like it. Industry's pretty good, right? I love Lindustry. Yeah. It's Feeny good. Pizza is great. Um, best Pizza is right around the corner from me. I've been a longtime fan. Yeah. You know, Grandma Slice there is great. Um, so I don't, I don't want for pizza. Yeah, pizza's rich in Williamsburg. I love it. <laughs> okay, books, are you, we'll get to the final question, but I want to just know, cookbooks, is there any future cookbook in your in your, in your your plans? God, I'm not anytime soon. Yeah, taking um, a break. I think, yeah, that that was a bit of a beast in yeah. those three years. And, um, you know, I, I don't, um, I don't have anything that's like in the drink space right now where I'm like dying to kind of yeah. go deep on it. I think like having maybe my weekends back feels yeah. kind of good. <laughs> yeah. Just for a bit. For a bit. Yeah. Enjoy your weekends. Yeah. Book deadlines are fun. Book deadlines. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, I it, whatever I do next, I think that there it, it might be something that like is a little bit left field, maybe something. I mean, I've, it's always been the way in which I've I've been lucky enough to learn. Yeah. So it's like a topic that I might not know a lot about. And I use the book to to figure it out and, and try to write with that kind of 
point of view as well. Like yeah. Sherry was a topic where I was like, there's no way I, this is so huge mm-hmm. and, and difficult and um, technical. And I sort of just went at that. I'm like, I really like this and I want to learn more. And, and so I, I feel like I have more confidence to be able to p- perhaps tackle a topic that's outside of food outside or of food or drink. Well, maybe we'll see that, but I want to ask you, Talia, we asked all guests on the Taste Podcast, if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of time, meaning you have no deadline, or the burden of budget, meaning you have all the money in the world, Talia, what would that be? Oh, my God. I mean, it would probably be like a comprehensive book on Italian drinks. And I don't mean just like low key. I Mm. mean like wine, beer, spirits, cocktails, like a true sort of magnum opus on Italian drinking and Italian drinking culture. I would – but that would be a years-long project and something that will never happen. Okay. but (laughs) Great, great caveats. Yeah. But I would love to do that. I've also like always been fascinated with with alpine drinking culture and and eating culture and I love that part of Italy. Um, And that would be supremely fun and also Mm. include skiing, which is a nice bonus. Talia Baiocchi, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Eliza Abarbanel and me, Matt Rodbar. The show is produced by Shalia Harris and Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumber. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter for updates on all cool things that are happening.